You're listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. Today we're joined by David, the host of the Cold War channel on YouTube, one of the biggest channels creating historical documentaries about the Cold War in the social media space, to discuss how academics can engage better with the general public and improve the communications of historical research. So David, tell it, first of all, tell the audience a little bit about what your channel does. And then I understand you've got some interesting background in relation to the Cold War. You spent some time living in the post-Soviet states. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? So my name is David Schroeder. I'm the of a YouTube channel called The Cold War Channel. We are a, an affiliated channel with a, a larger channel called Kings and Generals. Uh, but the mission statement behind The Cold War Channel is to take a look and examine the history of the Cold War starting from 1945 through to uh, its end, uh, which we haven't actually decided how far we're going to go. There's obviously lots of debate in terms of when the Cold War ends, whether it be 1989 or 1991, or I've seen dates even pushed beyond that. Um, But that's uh, given the speed that we're moving through uh, our history. uh, We still have several years before we have to make a determination as to when we'll actually wrap the channel. But the idea behind the channel is to to tell the history of the Cold War and the Cold War era in general. It's a global conflict, obviously, that touches on all facets uh, globally. Uh, So there's lots and lots of stories and histories not to be told. And with that uh, mission, we are trying as much as humanly possible to be as as non-biased and to give uh, a balanced view as possible. Uh, It's obviously a very polarized, historical period lots of viewpoints that continue on into the present day so that's that's the general statement um, and mission behind the the channel itself we're there to to educate and to inform um, anybody who's interested in learning more about the cold war period as for myself uh, my name is as i said my name is david i am the host Uh, i have had a long interest in the cold war period and cold war history I uh, started born in the, the late 70s, so I'm a child of the, the late Cold War era, growing up uh, under the, the threat of the bomb, um, if you will. Um, but in terms of, for me, the, the late Cold War period is less history so much as it, it was itself and my family. We always had the news on growing up as a child. I uh, played a lot of video games as a child, many of which were set sort of with using a Cold War background. Um, and then I found myself, thanks to my father's job, in 1990, moving to uh, Hungary uh, as it was transitioning out from a Cold War, uh, Warsaw Pact state uh, into uh, market economy and uh, the so-called freedoms of the West. Um, so got to see that transition period over several years uh, firsthand and saw a lot of legacies of that Cold War era uh, in a post-Soviet uh, satellite state. So that was uh, that's an interest that captured my imagination has lasted along now till now uh, 30 years later 31 years later and it's still something that I'm interested in and still do obviously lots of research and writing and that on so I'm uh, very excited to be here Jack I'd like to say thank you very much for the invite to come on and talk about uh, the Cold War channel on uh, YouTube and just uh, talk about Cold War history I wanted to get you on because our podcast is mainly aimed at fellow academics other people who are in academia whereas you're much more in a space of general education general popular history and I think history occupies 
a very special place in terms of its engagement with the public because a lot of academia in other fields has that separation between the public and other academics a lot of you know scientific um work is just done and it's mostly consumed by other academics and other experts that are within the field but obviously with history there is also that process of trying to teach the general public history and engage with the general public and their interest in wanting to learn more about history so what i really wanted to do is chat through what it's like trying to communicate these ideas these historical ideas to the general public in a way that's digestible and engaging and what can academics take away from that to try and improve the way they're communicating with people and also what are some of the things that still need to be done in terms of teaching people about about the cold war because i I think there's obviously a lot of myths that that continue to exist about the cold war that sort of need to be defeated by better education and better engagement uh, with these ideas what you raise here jack is actually some really interesting points we're we're not an academic channel we claim to be an academic channel we're very much um in that public history sphere public like you know general education we don't aim at necessarily at an even an undergraduate level the level of history that we're presenting is a lot of it's a lot of introductory um of introductory coverage of the topics the topic of the week that we cover uh, and the idea is that uh with public history there's such a wide variety of general knowledge um, that some people may have some people may know a lot about particular aspects but not have the a greater context in terms of how a certain event fits into a larger picture the the other way that we see things is that people know nothing about a topic and we're there to try to provide information educate um, and hopefully spark interest that will then lead people to do their own research and maybe like delve further into specific topics or even general trends uh, within the historical period um, it's a we find a lot of our viewers um, some do have academic backgrounds um, that are you know, that watch the channel and provide us feedback and comment and engage with us. Um, but in general, it's very much a, I don't want to say a lay audience, but it's very much an audience that isn't necessarily involved in, in academia. So, Particularly the reason I wanted to get you on is because I think YouTube and social media operates in a very interesting space where it's almost halfway between a completely lay audience and an active academic audience because obviously people are choosing to seek out this type of content in a way that they aren't doing with just television. I'm just old enough to remember, and I'm probably the final generation to remember, when there were just five or six television channels on TV. And if you had a history documentary, it would have to be aimed at the broadest possible audience that could exist. So it would usually be World War II, and it would be the most sort of basic overview of of a conflict in as simplified a way as possible. How do you think the YouTube space is different and what beneficial ways are there to engage um, with the public? Are you able to get a bit more nuance and a bit more deep than you might have been able to do with television and things like this? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the social media in general, YouTube specifically, um, because it's accessible to, I'm not going to say the entire world, thanks to, you know, national firewalls and whatnot, but it's very much accessible to a, a huge, huge percentage of the planet. Um, but it's also based around the idea that people are actively searching for whatever that topic is. Um, within that, so as you say, like we you, we do get like a lay audience, people that don't might not know anything about 
the specific topic that we're talking about, the general trend, the general topic, how it fits into the broader picture. But they people have chosen to come looking for it. It's not um, like what you say with described with television, where that topic is being, for lack of a better word, being force fed to you. Because if you wanted to watch a history show, it's what the producers at that, that on that station, that channel, have decided to feed to you. Um, so, I mean, we, it allows us to tailor somewhat, and we do need to do that with YouTube. It's not this. I can get we can get into this in a little bit if you want. Um, but in terms of the topics that we choose, people are looking to us to pick like pick topics to to give to them. But there's an expectation in return that we're that if for them to continue watching, we need to give topics and subject material that they themselves as the audience are interested in. It's not a this isn't a it isn't a passive audience. There is definitely there's engagement, even if it is passive engagement, there's still a need to meet the expectation, meet the interest level of that audience that's coming looking to us. It's a it's a very it's a really interesting sort of dynamic that I wasn't aware of before the, the channel started and before we really got um, into this and started growing our, our viewership. Um, in terms of our ability to reach out to a vast audience, it's a double-edged sword. It's fantastic in that I can reach out and we can communicate uh, knowledge and information that might not be known to a really wide variety of people. There's also a wide variety of people out there that are simply looking for confirmation bias in a lot of ways. They're looking for channels to confirm the knowledge that they already know. And if we're presenting information to the audience that doesn't meet that expectation, it doesn't fit to their worldview, people get really upset. Um, there is nothing quite like a YouTube comment section to sometimes make you really want to give up on what it is that you're doing. But um, it uh, it is a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting space uh, to be present in. The majority of people that we that are viewing the channel and that are engaging with us, it's positive. They really do like you know, look look to the channel to sort of provide maybe not entire chunks of information, but little bits of information or sort of like new perspectives or new connections that they can make to the, what they already know about. People aren't coming to the channel unless they've already got an interest in it. And I think that's again, that's coming back to this this YouTube. Um, and social media aspect where people are actively searching and looking for the topic, um, as opposed to, as I said, television, where that's, you know, if you want history, you're, you're watching the Tudors today, or you're watching World War II, or whatever it happens. I've just picked the two big ones that are obviously always, like, seem to be on TV. Um, but that's very much... I'm, I'm what glad, things look like. I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear in Canada they also have their fair share of Tudor documentaries constantly <laughs> on television. <laughs> But the I, uh, I, I, I should I should point out to that Jack that they were mostly produced by BBC. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna blame the English for that one. It must be a great sort of feeling of responsibility in that way because academics already take a huge amount of care in the way they source things, in the way they are trying to build new information and put it out there. To what is actually consumed by a relatively small group of people, and those people are already experts who understand how to engage critically with these sort of things if you are creating a video on a certain historical topic and there is no other content out there or it just becomes 
the biggest video on on the platform on that topic area then you're actually producing a huge degree of influence on what people may perceive to be the truth about that topic so how do you how do you deal with that it's an interesting question and that's it's not a it isn't a, a it wasn't that it had even occurred to me when I got involved with the channel. It's become sort of more apparent as our viewership has increased. Um, and I've, we've had ac academics and educators, high school and undergraduate level academics, contacting us and telling us that they're using some of our content um, as part of their, their learning plans. Um, that's, it's a scary feeling. Uh, I'm not, and I'll, I'll be perfectly upfront, I'm not an academic. I have an undergraduate degree that would I would love to turn into something more, but have never had the opportunity. Um, and thanks to life and a whole bunch of other things that I won't bore anybody with, but it's one of these things that as a, as a non-academic, um, putting content together, we do need to be mindful of you know, how, like what sources we choose um, and the, the care and the attention that we put into how we're presenting material. Uh, especially given, as as I said, the, the audience is growing. We're somewhere over 215,000 subscribers at this point after about two years, which is, uh, that still still blows my mind. Uh, but it, it does it does mean that we, we do have a responsibility. It's a, it's a scary thought. Um, I have it, it's not, and I should also say, like this isn't, the, the channel isn't just me. There's a team of researchers and producers um, that are absolutely invaluable in terms of what we do. And we all work together to make sure that what we're doing and how we're presenting things comes across as factually correct and as non-biased and current as possible. The Cold War is one of these, because it is in a lot of ways, it's recent history. Uh, it's 30, 31, 32, 31 years old um, since the, this, the theoretical end of the conflict. Um, there's still an inordinate amount of like material um, and source material and whatnot that is classified um, that nobody nobody has access to, whether they be in state state archives in former Soviet republics in the United States, the UK, globally. Um, there's tons and tons of documentation, literally tons of documentation that will probably never become accessible in my lifetime how we choose what we present uh, does become tricky, difficult. Um, we always want to be sure that we're presenting as factually correct and as non-biased as possible. Uh, it's a, the Cold War being a conflict of ideology or theoretically a conflict of ideology. Um, and it's ideology debates that continue to influence and impact current politics and current decision-making. There's, there's a lot that's going on uh, in that space. Uh, it's a huge responsibility. Uh, we try to take as much care as possible. We've got our, we've had our mistakes, um, which we own and we certainly, you know, we apologize to anyone out there that we've possibly misled, um, but we do try as, as much as possible to, uh, to keep that as unbiased and factual as possible and as balanced, which is, which, and that can actually be the most difficult thing we are primarily, we, the channel is English language. We are not necessarily limited to only English language sources. We do have a couple of researchers that speak um, several different languages, uh, including uh, Russian. So there is access to 
some released Russian uh, material um, that's that's out there, uh, depending on republics uh, like Ukraine. Uh, their state uh, state archives tend to be fairly open from the Soviet period. Obviously, the Russian Federation; those are locked down, lock and key. Especially now, there was a brief period where they were open, uh, but there's it's it can be difficult, but we do try to take care of that. So. I wanted to revisit this idea. You're trying to make these this content interesting for the general audience, and therefore you've got to pick topics that are engaging, but you also think, I presume you also think have you know educational or other value as well. But then there's this sort of third thing, which I'm sure is in the back of everyone's mind who's trying to create educational content on social media, which is the algorithm. You know, this this idea that there is some sort of machine learning algorithm which generates and decides what lots of people are going to see those people who aren't directly searching for these things and even to some degree the people who are searching for these things are also influenced by the fact this algorithm of what they see so how does that sort of play in the back of your mind in terms of what you're trying to to create or do you just discount it entirely when you're trying to make these decisions the the algorithm that's sort of the, the ask any youtube creator about the algorithm and you're 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 bound to get a, a lecture um of whether favorable or not um you're, you're absolutely spot on the the youtube algorithm which is that algorithm that helps promote or not promote uh, what videos get recommended and suggested which is how which is that's one of the primary ways by which youtube creators on the platform expand their, their subscriber base and get new viewers is through that through that YouTube algorithm recommending a video. The better prior previous videos do, the more likely new videos uh, will get recommended. Um, so it, it is it can be a really difficult thing. Um, and it, a lot of it can depend on your audience as well, like in terms of what they're going to be interested in. What we've found over the last Probably over the last year to 18 months, the channel started in, uh, we think we launched March 9, uh, 2019. Um, over the last 18 months, give or take, what we realized is that our audience base is very heavily slanted in terms of its percentages being located in, I'm going to say, North America and the UK, mostly the United States. What people in the audience base are looking for is not necessarily information on their own history. Americans aren't, aren't out there looking for their own Cold War history. They want, lots of people want more information about former Soviet history. That's, that's, that's a really driving factor, um, what we've noticed in terms of where we get the most number of views. So that sort of, from a commercial perspective, and in terms of that, again, that algorithm, what we try need to try to balance is making sure that we're picking videos that will still drive engagement and get continue to grow the audience but which is going to be a lot of Soviet themed episodes but we there's a whole other side like four other sides to the conflict but there's a whole other side that western side that we need to talk about because there's tons and tons of topics in there that are absolutely fascinating but if we only focus on those for a while, our viewership actually drops. Um, so striking that balance can be really, really difficult. Um, I should be very forward in this as well. Like any YouTube channel, there's commercialization that goes into this as well. We, we get ad sponsors and ad sponsors want viewership. 
So it's striking that balance between making sure that we remain financially viable. It's not a, the channel costs us money to maintain, um, but also making sure that we're, we're telling a history that's, that's true to the, that's true to the, the, the theme and the topic. Um, so it's, there's, there's definitely some, uh, there's some pretty heated debates that we have in terms, like in terms of our topic selection, how we do our topics, and what we select and what we want to present. Um, so it's it's a it's a there's a constant conflict with that. Um, for myself personally, I like doing a lot of the Soviet-themed episodes. It's not how I grew up. Um, so some of that some some of those those pieces are really really incredibly interesting. We're just in the process of uh, finalizing an episode on. Uh, the internal passport system in the Soviet Union and sort of its progression from the from being abolished during the revolution to reintroduction in the 30s and how it evolved and didn't evolve through the Cold War period and that's just something that is it's so it's a very foreign concept to myself as a as a Canadian um, that it's really interesting I like doing topics like this but we need to balance that against doing more US focused topics um, which we struggle with that sometimes, and that's that's simply the truth. So, it's uh, finding finding that balance can be very difficult. I think it's it's really interesting what your channel provides, and I think it's partially due because, as we've discussed, you have that engaged, self-selecting audience that you're able to branch out. If you watch a history documentary on, say, the History Channel, usually you get what a lot of what I would call sort of bombs and bullets history. Right? It's the big battles of history. Lots and lots of warfare stuff dominates uh, history documentaries for general consumption. And I presume that's because that that does draw in a large audience. Whereas your channel, like this idea of the internal passports is a perfect example. It's not bombs and bullets history. It's the social political history of a country. You've discussed things like the Sovietization of the Eastern European states. And as we go, as you go through the Cold War, I presume you'll you have loads of other non-military issues that occurred during this period. Whether it's the you know the social revolutions of the sixties, feminist revolution, all of these things are topics which aren't that traditional militarized Cold War narrative. And how do you find engaging with the general public on these issues versus that traditional military history? The, the the bombs and bullets approach is that's a it's a golden ticket to viewership. That's that's the simple truth. Some of our best episodes are ones that are about military operations. They're about you know the, we have an episode a full length episode on the Korean War uh, that was done in conjunction with King the Kings and Generals channel, uh, which is our parent channel. Um, and those are those are viewership gold. People really do love that um, and they're super interested in it. Our social history episodes, especially this that we did it because I can speak honestly here. Um, one of our worst performing episodes that we've ever done um, was on the early civil rights, modern civil rights movement in the United States. It did, like in terms of viewership, it did very poorly. And yet it is one of those key early social history movements um, within the Cold War period. Um, and it needs to be talked about. It's important. It has tons of relevance um, to to the broader narrative um, in terms of what explaining what's happening in the United States and those domestic decisions that obviously influence international decisions. 
Um, but in terms of that viewership, it, it doesn't grab the viewership. Um, one of my favorite episodes that we've to sort of switch, switch subject material, it's a little less, still social history, but sport history. Sports and, and the Cold War are like, they can, they're literally synonymous like that. There's people want to tell you, especially these days that, you know, politics doesn't in, like, doesn't, shouldn't be involved in sports. Sports and politics go hand in hand and have for decades and decades. Um, one of my favorite episodes that we did was on talking about the, the Hungarian football team, in the 1950s, the gold, the, the mighty Magyars, which was this probably one of the, the best, best international football teams that's ever been assembled and ever played on the international stage. And I figured going to this, you know what, this is, this is perfect. This is the perfect episode. It's this perfect confluence of cold war history and sport and social history that everyone seems to like, you know, be drawn into and asking us for. And in terms of its viewership and its performance, it actually did really poorly, which I'm not going to cry on air or anything like that, but it, it, it hurt me a little bit. Like it was, it was this great episode we did. I think we did, we did just, we did justice to the topic. Um, but it's, but as soon as we put something out there where there's a tank, our viewership automatically goes up and it's, it's really quite, uh, and I don't know if that's, simply that lay history versus more academic history where academic more academic history is looking towards what those underlying driving factors are um and how they they sort of present themselves versus you know i don't want to i don't want to slate great man theory but i'm going to slate great man theory it's this popular idea that like you know it's it's easy to grasp it's easy to sort of cotton on to this is this is why something happened um versus you know decades worth of slow social change that's happening under the surface um so it's it's really it's really quite interesting to see how that that split sort of presents itself um the the cold war going back to what you were asking originally because i go off on tangents um the, the Cold War was a war. People want to tell you that there was no shooting, there was no fighting. There was lots of shooting, there was lots of fighting. It just didn't happen directly between the United States and the Soviet Union. It's a it's a 45-year conflict of proxy wars, finding developing nations and using them to enact your, your battle fantasies, I guess. Um, and it's not just Vietnam, it's not just Afghanistan, it's, you know, there's all Central America, Sub-Saharan Africa through the decolonization and post-decolonization process. All of these, these aspects and these things, there is so much fighting. There are millions and millions of casualties um, that happened through the Cold War. It, it, isn't a, it isn't a conflict with no bullets. It's not a conflict with no bombs and no killing. There's lots of it going on. Um, but presenting that people want to hear about war they want to hear about conflict i i'm not going to get into why why that might happen to be um but it's it, it's very it's very interesting to me to see to sort of see where people have their interests and then trying to balance that against what we need to do as a channel to present the information that's to make all of it makes sense you can't understand Vietnam without knowing what's like the social movements that are going on in the United States. You can't understand Afghanistan and the, the impact that, that 
the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan had on society in the Soviet Union, whether that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union or not is irrelevant. There's massive, massive social changes that are happening under the under the uh, under the covers, so to so to speak. Um, that all these things that, that that it all draws in. So it's um it's it's quite interesting to see how. And as I said, like and this goes back to what we were saying before, like this is a struggle for us in terms of making sure that we're we're being true to the history and explaining things properly and you know in a relevant manner and still making sure that we're drawing in clicks and making sure that we're getting viewership. We we can't continue this channel if we don't have viewership. I also think that's it's not to denigrate bombs and bullets history because wars are some of the most devastating things that can ever happen to society. So they are hugely important, particularly to the places in which they occur and to the people who are fighting in them. So it's not to say that you shouldn't cover these topics. You definitely should because they're so important. It's about finding that balance between what you can provide as a, a channel of self-selecting people who want to learn about these things and what big production houses are already providing. Because obviously the, the bigger the conflict, the more that it's in the public imagination, the more there already is that exists about that topic area. Absolutely. Um, one of the, because we're, it, it's a 45 year plus conflict that we're talking about um, and that we're trying to present information on um, and we're, we're moving slower than we thought we would. Um, we figured when we first started the channel that we would probably at this point in the channel's lifespan that we would be somewhere in the 70s to 80s and sort of approaching the end of the channel. We we are still dealing with material in the 1950s, um, two and a half years, um, which which we love. I think with this, it's great. Um, there's lots of information out there that people don't know a lot about, and it gives us time to sort of to work with things and building building a bigger narrative. Um, there, we we have a sort of a we have a vague rough structure that we're working with. Obviously, um, the 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 guns and the bombs and the bullets um, aspect to it. People want what we find is with social media is people want to see they want to see images they want to see video of that, um, and with a lot of these things like even when there is a, a bombs and bullets type event, um, getting visual material for that can be incredibly incredibly difficult. Um, especially earlier on, sort of like you know, nineteen pre nineteen sixties, especially uh, for a variety of reasons. Not everybody had a cell phone. Uh, depending where things, what the where the event was happening, um, cameras were certainly not a welcome sight. Uh, finding finding appropriate video image or picture image for something like the nineteen fifty three uh, East German uprising, that's a really tough ask. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of visual material to engage with uh, from from that particular event. Same thing with, let's say, the 1956 Polish uprisings in Poznan. Um, that that's still find like sort of that that engagement material, um, which leaves people with me as a talking head on screen, um, or we use sort of non-related footage and try to sub that in. And I don't want to say hope people don't notice, but um, we hope that people understand that mm -hmm. you know that YouTube is a visual medium. 
but it does require some compromise um, simply because sometimes there is a lack of, of visual material to sort of present on whatever the topic is. That's really interesting. It's a limitation I hadn't thought about because you can, you know, go to the archives and find out about these events. You can speak to survivors if there are still survivors for these events. But when you've actually got to present that to someone, then you actually do need that extra thing which you don't need when you are just writing a book about it or writing a paper about it because it's already understood that the medium is just is just going to be text so that's fine i wanted to move on to academia and i just wanted to hear some of your thoughts about what you think academia could do better to engage with the general public because obviously not every academic is going to is going to go out and become a youtuber and that's fine because i think there's a good symbiotic relationship between people making specific academic history that's for a very you know hyper-focused audience and for people who are making these big general histories that are for a big public audience but how can academics try and bridge that gap a little bit and maybe hopefully make people not feel like academia is such a detached place from their life and that their understanding of the world it, it's a i think that's a it's a this is a great question uh, jack and I, I think it's something that a lot of struggle with um, in terms of from a, a popular public history side and from an academic side. Um, I think fundamentally from my own experience is that academia and academics, not exclusively, but can often be a very, it's a very gate-kept profession. Um, academics want to engage with academics and letting other lay people in, so to speak, um, is something that that isn't necessarily they're not necessarily the most open thing to do, um, and one of the one of the primary things that I think the gatekeep one of the primary means that I think gatekeeping happens through is actually the use of language. Um, academic writing has a very well earned reputation as often being dry and failing to capture the imagination, and there's a reason. There's a reason for it. There's, you know, it's when there's academic writing, it's being done to, for a particular and specific point and purpose and making arguments that need to be both sourced, accurate, and airtight um, to prevent sort of other academics from attacking and cutting holes all the way through it. Uh, it does tend to present a very circular language um, by its nature, but that does tend to prevent popular readership. Um, I've read some phenomenally interesting academic works that have been absolutely painful to get through. And I'm sure that's the experience of anyone from, you know, who's ever picked up an academic uh, work. They can be incredibly difficult and incredibly dense. Um, one of the other things, so I mean, just even, I don't want to say like use a copy editor because that's not necessarily the right solution. But opening up the language that's being used in academic writing would, I, it's easy for me to say this, it's much more difficult to do, but opening up the language that's used in academic writing would likely increase readership. Um, the other thing that I find with academic writing is that there's a large degree of, there's a presumption of a large degree of familiarity with both analytic tools that are being used in the work, uh, as well as sort of the, the general and even specific historiography uh, of the subject material that's being covered. Um, 
which I understand it's it's academic, it's building, like you know, it's always building on like you know the the shoulders, standing on the shoulders of those that came before. Um, but what it tends to do is make it incredibly difficult for non-academics to be able to access. Non-academics might not be familiar with Foucault, they might not be familiar with Derrida, they might not be familiar with with the actual writings of Marx, um, which if you're not familiar with the, the analytical tool and the lens that's being used in terms of the academic writing, it makes it impenetrable to a large degree. Um, so I think that's, I mean, this is this is the, the points that I will make. Do I have a solution to any of these things that you know academics can try to open up their writing to a broader audience? No, I'm I'm not I'm not that guy. I'm sorry. I'm I don't have that magic bullet. Um, but that's that's very much been my experience and the experience of others that uh, that I work with and that I that I sort of in my my circle um, in terms of academic access. Um, there's certainly a among the part of some, not all, and not. I'm not even going to say many. I think that's um, there's a, a gatekeeping that you know it's academia is for academics and no one else should be able to access that, um, and the status and the you know whatnot that that gives, um, but just the the degree of the way things are written in academia uh, is uh, is very much can make the accessibility difficult. Um, touching on what we were just talking about. There's a lack of visual material. Lots of there's a, a lot of people that engage visually. Um, that's I mean, popular television is all about visual engagement. Uh, YouTube, which is I mean, that's the space that I'm in. That's all about visual engagement. Um, academic works don't necessarily tend to translate particularly well directly into a visual medium. Um, I do really enjoy Scott like. Presentations and conferences, I think those are absolutely fantastic um, in terms of being able to better engage because it's not just the dry written word. It's there's somebody to listen to, there's somebody to watch. Sometimes there's actually there's you know PowerPoints or you know whatnot that goes along with that. Um, probably I'm going to point out one thing that's actually possibly good that's come from the pandemic is that a lot of conferences and whatnot have moved online or there's an online component to them and that actually opens up access uh, to a lot of people to be able to attend um, and to engage with that that may not have been able to access or engage with uh, in the past um, and that's between travel and registration all there's a whole variety of different things obviously uh, but that's 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 something I think that's hopefully in a if we ever get to a post pandemic period hopefully that that's something that that component to things actually remains in place um, and just makes it easier for non academics or people who aren't actively involved in academia to be able to get involved um, with a more scholarly historical um, perspective. I think that's a really, really great point and one I hadn't thought of previously. This point on conferences, I think, is really interesting because I think with the internet, what you got is a lot of people who previously may have done their study through libraries or whatever public facilities were available. There's always been that group of people who want to spend their entire life learning and taking in new information and what you might lay specialists if you like people who are really well versed in a subject but they're not it's not their profession it's not what, what they do for a living or hobbyist specialists about this topic but the basis for academia was still never open to those people and now there really is for things like conferences 
if you just have the conference and open it up to a Zoom room that people can participate in, there is still really zero marginal cost to being able to have these people who are deeply engaged with this topic but maybe are not part of an academic institution being engaged with that. So I think that's a really interesting idea for how academia can be more open to people. It, it also, what I find, it also removes the, the barrier between, um, the, the distance barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, myself, I live in the Toronto area and I've attended talks and presentations that have hap- that been happening in, you know, in London, in, you know, in Berlin, um, California, all these locations that I certainly wouldn't be able to get to even in non-pandemic times. Um, and I certainly wouldn't go to for a 60 minute presentation, but it's online. So it's easy to be able to access. Um, and if it's been recorded and it's available afterwards, that makes it even easier because then it's, it's less about me having to clear my schedule, uh, to make sure that I'm available at that specific time. Um, and I, I can watch that in my, in my, my history time, my non-professional time, um, this, I'll, I should probably mention at this point that this YouTube channel is a, this, this is a hobby. I, I have a full-time career that I, you know, that I use to pay my bills um, and make sure that I have food on my table and can feed my kids. This is, this is a hobby. It's a fantastic hobby and I love doing it, but it, I, I have a full-time job that needs to be maintained, but I still want to be able to engage um, with other historians and with other people who are involved in the subject matter that I love and online conferences, online recordings, presentations, all that, that's, it's a fantastic way to do it. Uh, I should also point out and, you know, give a a big shout out to a gentleman like yourself, Jack, podcasts are a fantastic way um, for academics um, and lay historians to be able to engage with an audience and engage with people who are interested in subject material. It works the exact same way. People can, it, it exists on this, this podcast space that people can access at their, at their convenience in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And if they're, they're interested in it, they will, they will listen to it. They will engage. Um, they'll seek out, you know, hosts and producers and they'll engage with them on social media, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever that, whatever space that happens to be in. Uh, but podcast, podcasting, YouTube's, like YouTube's, it's plural now. <laughs> All of those things are fantastic in terms of being able to engage with an audience um, where the written word can be a very daunting and complicated space to, to be able to access. Not to mention just the sheer cost of academic books. Um, As individual academics, we can't change the the issues, the entire business model around how knowledge needs to be kept by these various institutions in order for them to be marketable and and to get people to pay for them so that we can have salaries and carry on producing this information so it is a two-way street and i think this idea of these very low cost ways of being able to open up academia will actually help i think with a lot of the growing perception, particularly in Western countries, and this growing backlash against what is perceived as a sort of ivory tower form of academia, I think if you can open up academia, then it's far harder for it to be presented as an ivory tower institution that is in some way in conflict with, with lay people who aren't part of it as an, as an institution. 
Absolutely. That's, uh, yeah, I was actively trying not to use the expression ivory tower. <laughs> That's, uh, it is, it's, it's been, I've been, as I said, I have a, an undergraduate degree in history, um, but it, I completed that 21 years ago, um, and I haven't been back into academia proper since then. Um, I, would, I spent 20 years, I have, a, I have a completely separate career in a completely different field doing absolutely nothing to do with history. Um, but the idea that academia as a, as a practice is so ring-fenced in a lot of ways, deliberately so from the inside, um, it's, it's daunting for people like myself who may be interested in getting back involved um, in a in a more research focused, um, even just as a hobby. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the, the the more the more tools and the more different methodologies that we can find to be able to to be able to draw more people into academia, history specifically, but academia in general. I, I think it's a I think it's a, a big win for everybody. It. Uh, Education should be for all. So I want to shift back to the Cold War and the public's perception of the Cold War because obviously with the number of comments and engagement that you have with a massive audience, I mean, you said you had 215,000 subscribers. I think if any academic historian had 215,000 people read their book they they would be they would be over the moon that so many people had read had read their book. So what do you think are some of the continuing myths and mythology around the cold war that continue to exist i think there has been big focus on disinformation and poorly presented information on things like social media but of course people's myths and mythology about how the cold war happened long predates social media it's just that social media has in many cases accelerated and made it worse in that these myths and mythologies are repeated and and put forward to more people so maybe we can talk a little bit about what do you think some of these myths are that need to be tackled and how do you deal in general with the fact that you can operate in a space where someone who is telling a complete untruth operates with the same level of of authority because it's it's just social media right how do you combat that and show that you're a more authoritative voice yeah, myths, I mean, persistent myth in the Cold War is, uh, that's something every, we release a video every Saturday morning, um, Toronto time, Saturday morning, we release that video, and every week when we hit publish um, and put that uh, that video out, I sit in my living room and I wonder what, what what's the feedback going to be like, and I think like like anybody, as soon as you put anything out there with your name on it, there's always sort of that fear of I think it's imposter syndrome to a degree. Um, I've gotten better with the imposter syndrome uh, perspective of it, but now worry more about what what weird theory and truther are, is going to show up in the comment section um, of whatever the, the video topic happens to be. Um, in terms of some of those really persistent myths uh, about the Cold War, uh, there's de- there's definitely a really strong, persistent theme that runs through a lot of people's viewpoints of the Cold War that the, the Soviet Union and its allied states, satellite states, puppet states, whatever term you want to use, and I'm, I'm going to be, even the language that I've just used there buys into this and perpetuates that myth, is that it was this monolithic block that the Soviet Union controlled, um, which 
to a degree it did control, but each one of those Soviet satellite states, especially, and then thinking specifically in like the East Bloc and Eastern Europe, each of those states had their own independent foreign policies that they pursued. They may not have been done it, been doing it overtly. It, a lot of times it was being done sort of on a much more subtle method uh, through a variety of different avenues. But countries like East Germany, like the former DDR, had their own independent foreign policy and they had really deep, rich ties to places like Vietnam and to Chile, um, the, which I don't think a lot of people outside of that specific sphere are necessarily particularly aware of. And those, some of those foreign policy policies and approaches were being done without the knowledge of Moscow. It was, truly, they were being done independently to foster deeper relationships between that individual state and whatever the other state was. Um, there's also some more, like, you know, sort of larger, more obvious ones, um, Cuban involvement in military involvement in places like Angola. That was done as Cuba. Was it done with Soviet blessing? Yes, but it was very much a Cuban thing to go and to, to do that, fostering Cuban like relations with other Latin American countries was very much a Cuban thing to do. It wasn't done like you know the that you know there's a somebody sitting at a desk in Moscow saying okay like you know this country is going to go do this and do this now etc cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very much the there's this idea that the Soviet Union was this monolithic, all-powerful block that, you know, was moving the pawns all over the place. There's, there's lots and lots more evidence that's being presented now in English um, that, that just isn't true, and that there was lots of independent things that were happening constantly, even for the, the, the Moscow-aligned uh, states, which um, I'm really actually excited to see more uh, more language, more English language uh, material coming out um, and sort of delving into that further. I think there's a lot more material that's language locked um, in countries like Czechia and in Slovakia, Poland, in Germany, um, Hungary that that sort of delves into that, but it's not available in English as of yet. So I'm, I'm really excited to see more of that um, to be able to help dispel some of that that myth that uh, that certainly exists out there. A um, couple of other, I mean, sort of the big myth. Um, I think this is this is this is a myth that is really hard to. It's really hard to to com combat. I don't know if that's even the right word. Um, but this this whole notion that that the United States was the defender of democracy and freedom around the world. Um, I'm going to sound really anti-American when I say this. Um, how do you, it's that, for me, it's that debate, how do you reconcile a, a country as a defender of democracy and freedom when they're spending their time effectively propping up like right-wing dictatorships um, and you know, right-leaning dictatorships and totalitarian, almost totalitarian, author certainly authoritarian states? Um, and we saw that and through the history of then South Vietnam, South Korea, all across Latin America, Africa, um, sponsoring right-wing, more right-leaning rebel movements in a lot of these places if they weren't in power, um, just to make sure that they were sort of standing against let anything that was left-leaning that was being supported by the Soviet Union. That's a really tough, a very persistent myth um, 
especially in the United States, um, but certainly in other parts of the world as well. Uh, very much, and it's, I think, from my opinion, I think it's very hard to combat that, um, that, that 90, 1990s era of, you know, triumphalism that existed in the United States because they, quote unquote, won the Cold War. Um, and, you know, it's like liberal democracy and, you know, end of history type stuff um, that comes out from that. That's a really difficult myth to, to sort of to combat and to, to fight against especially when you have a very people with a very entrenched viewpoint that don't want to be convinced. I'm firmly on, on uh, the side the, the mind that convincing someone who doesn't want to be convinced of something is next to impossible to do, no matter what evidence you present. Um, so that, that's, a really, that's a really big myth that we see come up in the, in the comments. And it's not necessarily always presented in the comments exactly in that from that perspective, it's oftentimes presented as, well, no matter what awful thing that we know the US, the US has done or has sponsored or whatnot, it, it, it's always justified by, well, they won in the end, so it must have been okay. Liberal democracy and capitalism triumphed at the end, so that's, you know, might makes right, or, you know, if, ends justifies the means, whatever that happens, whatever sort of justification you want to use for that. But that, I think, is uh, that's a really, really difficult myth to combat. Um, I think it's far easier to combat that uh, in, say, if you were in South Korea and you take a look at the, the years of military dictatorship uh, in South Korea, it's, I mean, human rights abuses, and there's lots and lots of evidence towards that. But because South Korea's has transitioned and they're fine now, then, you know, the ends justifies the means. That's a, it's a really interesting thing to see come up constantly through the comments. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really big, it's a really big myth that if people want to, if people want to believe and understand then great. If not, well, I mean, the evidence is there if they choose to ignore it. I, I have done my best. So I think this idea that you've done your best is quite important and this is I think the double edged sword of social media. I'd like to to maybe return quickly to this idea of the issues that exist amongst the social media programming of anyone can be an authority on a topic, even if they have an agenda, even if they are completely misinformed on the topic. If you create a YouTube video, then you are put into the pool with all the other YouTube videos. And and that I think can be, can be very problematic. I also think trying to push back on that needs to be done in a sensible way, especially with if you are an academic. I do occasionally see my academic colleagues on Twitter arguing with sort of anonymous people who don't know anything about about a topic and I do want to just sometimes shake them and go why are you doing this <laughs> surely there must be something better you could do with your time so I think there's that double-edged sword with how do you push back against disinformation without it becoming the entirety of your life or becoming you know uh, a, such a minor battle that maybe maybe there are better things that you could be doing to to uh, be publicly educating people. But how do you deal with this issue that, that anyone can basically make a YouTube video and be seen to the same level as you who has a whole team of people doing research and, and, and trying to present a, a fair and balanced view of things? It, it, it's tough. It, it's a really, and it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great point. I think at the end of the day, um, 
I, we need to be honest. We need to be honest to ourselves and we need to, we, we do the job that we set out to do and make a, try to make a video on a topic that we feel is as fair and as balanced as we think that we can make it. Um, how others choose to engage with that. I really don't have any control over that as much as is humanly possible. If people choose to come back to us with, you know, as I don't want to say an argument, but with maybe a contradictory viewpoint, whatnot, we will engage as much as we possibly think that we can to the extent that it would be beneficial. There are always going to be people that are just want, they just want to be argumentative or they're so entrenched and so fixed in their viewpoint that it doesn't matter what the argument is, there's no way that you're going to change their mind for our own well-being and mental health. Um, I, I mean, I, I laugh and I mean, you're, you're laughing as well, but genuinely for my own mental health and well-being, there are times where I have to say, you know what, that's, you know, we, we're not, there's no further point in continuing engagement with someone who simply wants to be contradictory or isn't going to argue in good faith. Um, and that's from, is that the right approach for an education channel? Well, it, it's the right approach for us as the, the producers and myself as the host and as our researchers, um, because there's only so far that we can go um, before it actually starts to be like, have negative impact on us. People, I, I'm, I can only do what I can do. I can only present the information that I have to try to, as the truth and what we see as the truth. And if people don't want to accept that, well, that's, that's less on me because I've done my part. That's on them for not recognizing that there may be something outside of their narrow viewpoint of what something is. So I, of course, chuckled as well, but I, I think that's absolutely the right approach to take. I think especially that point you made about whether it's being done in good faith or not, about whether this person is actually trying to become more informed or whether, as you say, they are, they've made up their mind about what they think about a topic and they're there to to be angry that you've you've contradicted that that point of view right and that's i think one of these perennial issues which is that you've got to decide when you can engage when you can't engage and i think it's not only just because of the men, the negative mental health benefits of of social media sometimes which uh, are massive and and shouldn't be underestimated but also just because sometimes it's a waste of time and there are there are better things you could there are other people you can reach right there's always an opportunity cost to every form of engagement that you do in the in this field 100 it's um someone who is a, a dedicated and confirmed well we call them the tankies with the the stylists out there i'm i'm, I'm not going to con i know that no matter what i present um, in terms of the the information that we have, no matter how many you know sources, like primary, secondary, tertiary sources we have that will verify exactly what we've said, there are there are arguments that I'm going to possibly begin that I know that there's not going to be any point to going any further because that the person on the other side is so entrenched, is so fixed in their viewpoint, no matter what ent uh, evidence to the contrary exists that it, it's futile for, 
for me to try to continue to engage them. It's a sense of total sense of frustration. Um, and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I may not agree with it um, based on, you know, either opinion or fact. Um, but at the end of the day, like that's as long as, as I said earlier, as long as I've done what I feel is my best in terms of presenting the information as it exists to the best of our knowledge, that's what I can do. David, I, I really want to thank you for coming along and having a chat with us today because I think this sort of space is a really important place for people who want to be educators, people who want to be researchers to understand because it's a place that people are increasingly getting their information in and it might be a place that educators want to try and you know dip their toe into that they might want to think about how they want to operate in and i also thought some of the comments you made about how we can open up academia in general have just been incredibly helpful and i think it's been a really great conversation and i hope that people can take away some of these ideas i i know some some of this discussion has seen you know it's occasionally slightly negative about about social media as a space but <laughs> as a as i said uh, before i think if, if any one of us historians had over 200,000 people read one of our pieces, and I'm sure the number of views you must have on your videos in terms of the actual meaningful impact you're having on the general public's perception of this topic is huge. So any educators who want to think about how, how can they actually make their impactful on the general public needs to be thinking, if not that they want to get into this space, how are they going to choose to engage with people who are already operating there uh, so that their work can be best understood by the rest of the world, you know, not just this tiny little uh, group of other academics. Um, so thank you so much for coming. And uh, any other thoughts you have, or, or if you want to tell people a little bit more about the channel, then uh, go ahead. I just I want to say thank you very much for the, the invite to come on, Jack. It was, uh, I, can't, I can't say that it wasn't more than a little bit intimidated. Uh, you've had some phenomenal uh, guests um, that you've uh, spoken with on previous episodes, and it's uh, a little more than just a little bit intimidating to be uh, to be even next to uh, such uh, such prominent uh, gentlemen like Odar Navestat, who's uh, obviously I've got several books of his sitting on my my shelf. Um, it's this is a this is a really big honor, and I really appreciate, uh, and I really actually. What I think I appreciate the most um, in reaching out to me, Jack, is that you're not just looking at the academic sphere. You're looking beyond that in terms of the history and public history and how people are at choosing to access knowledge and information uh, in 2021. Um, the, the channel itself is uh, it's the Cold War channel. Uh, we're on YouTube. Uh, we release a one new video once a week on Saturday mornings. Uh, we are we're somewhere in the... Uh, somewhere in the mid to late 50s in terms of our rough chronology, we move forward and back a little bit, uh, depending on exactly what we're looking at on any given week. Um, but uh, certainly I am th absolutely thrilled uh, to have been invited on. This has been uh, a real a real pleasure, um, fantastic questions. And uh, certainly if there's anyone out there that's interested in uh, speaking with us about you know Cold War history, I'm always happy to engage uh, in good faith as much as possible. So. Thanks so much, David. Cheers. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You've been listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore ir theory.
Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube and the LSEI player. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsu-Mellish and this has been the LSE Cold War Podcast. <laughs>